The famous historians Will and Ariel Durant said that, quote, war is one of the constants of history and has not diminished with civilization and democracy. In the last 3,421 years of recorded history, they continue, only 268 have seen no war. And I might add that the 20th century, despite all of our advances, in many ways because of all of our technological advances, was history's most bloody and violent century. By some estimates, more bloody and violent than all other centuries before it combined. And none of this even counts, right, the rivers of bloodshed and violence that would not be classified as wars. We're not even counting the hundreds of millions of lives of unborn children which have been snuffed out by 20th century technologies. Or we are not counting the low-scale, unrecorded, dirty little private and local battles that scar the lives of individuals and clans and communities. To write the history, to write the history of any era in any place is to write extensively about warfare and bloodshed. Peace seems like a human impossibility. I mean, after all, the problems are intractable problems. They seem insurmountable. Justice and order require, do they not? Do they not require the defeat of the other side? And that will, or at least that may, require a resort to arms or some form of coercion or violence. Certainly that is what the audience, or a good chunk of the audience that Jesus is speaking to in the Sermon on the Mount, that is exactly what they thought. Many first century Jews, but especially the zealots, right? The zealots are the political firebrands among them, right? Many first century Jews had come to believe that revolutionary violence was the only appropriate way forward. Given the oppression, given the abuse that they had long suffered at the hands of the Romans, it seemed self-evident. If you don't fight for your liberties... You don't deserve them. And it was that position which ultimately prevailed among the nation and led tragically to a crushing defeat at the hands of the Romans in the wars from 66 to 70 or so AD. And this beatitude, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God, is aimed directly at the zealot-like spirit of political violence and revolution that was in the air. And indeed, it is the teaching and the example, the teaching and the example of Jesus. They are why the early Christians were vehemently opposed to war of all sorts. Just war theory came later. That's a 4th century development stemming from Augustine. This this is why the early church is almost universally against serving in the army. Period. In their view, what they were doing was simply repudiating the violence of this age and the violence of the kingdoms of this age. After all, their master had said, 
if my kingdom were of the world, then my servants would be fighting. Right? You want swords? Right? You want armies? You want violence? You're going to need another king. And so this beatitude is taking aim at that. And it's the final one dealing with the character, the virtue of the Christian person. We looked at them out of order. A few weeks ago, we looked at persecution. That's the effect of the Beatitudes, right? This one is dealing with the last statement about Christian character. And as we've said throughout this series, none of these virtues can flourish without all the others. So they belong together. But in putting this one at the end, Jesus makes it something of a capstone. He makes it something of the summit of the Beatitudes, this glorious and demanding portrait of kingdom existence. So it's my sincere hope that you have not come through, as I have not, the Beatitudes unscathed. That would be dangerous to your spiritual well-being. I have a few people who've told me through this series, I'm not even sure I'm a Christian when you're done with these sermons. And I say, that's good. That's what they're supposed to do. I'd be worried if you got through the Beatitudes thinking, I've pretty much got this wired. So, with that, we're going to make two points. Peacemakers and sons of God. So first, peacemakers. Now, often we like to expound a text and then at the end show how it points us to Christ. But here, I don't think we can get anywhere unless we direct our eyes to him at the outset. He is the peacemaker. right? The peacemaker who makes us peacemakers. So we start here. And starting here, we can see two basic things, two fundamental things. We can see them clearly, I think. The first one is what I call a sober assessment of the problem. So, only Christianity, I would assert, only Christianity, takes the full measure of the human condition in all of its depth with appropriate seriousness. War and hostility, enmity. Forget the international kind. Forget the kind between states. Just fighting in wars among Christians in the church. This, James tells us, has its source in our lusts. What causes fights and quarrels among you, he says? Don't they come from your own lusts and desires that battle within you? You desire and you don't have, so you kill. You covet, you can't get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. Well, that's kind of blunt, James, and that's not the way we would narrate it. Why why are there quarrels and fights in the church? Because we're right and they're wrong. I mean, nobody narrates it this way. Nobody says, you know what, the reason we have this discord and this quarreling is because we're all lustful. The source of human alienation and conflict, the root of violence, is not on the surface of life. It's not even primarily in structures or institutions or in political movements. It is deep and entrenched in our own disordered souls. So one way to put this is, what what do you think the greatest threat to the church is today? 
those people out there who are coming after us to do this, that, or the other thing? I can tell you what I think the greatest threat is. I think it's right, it's down in here. It's the entrenched, deceitful evil of my own heart. I am much more worried about that than than I am worried about any kind of exterior threat or enemy. What scares you more? You're not going to be able to get to the place of a peacemaker until you can agree with James that it is that place of depravity and darkness and disease and twisted treachery that is deep down inside of us. It's that place that the Beatitudes are trying to cut down into. Right? To strike at. To strike for the sake of healing, of course, because God is our Father and He loves us. He strikes us, but He strikes us surgically to heal us. The Beatitudes seek to cut down there, where the root of problems are. So that's the first thing we can see. The second thing is we note that God is utterly committed to obliterating the roots, the branches, and all the tentacles of war and hostility and division on whatever scale you want to take it. A marital scale, a family scale, a local scale, an international scale. So much so that the Son of God has, at infinite cost, descended into our flesh, into that disordered and entrenched treachery into our God-forsaken violence and our inhumanity to make peace. Right? Christianity alone assesses our condition without blinking, and Christianity alone has a God who is willing to be publicly humiliated and unjustly executed and to take our violence on his own head to end violence and to make peace. And the peace in view here is not a mere cold peace, right, or a cessation of hostilities, or a civil peace. Right? It's not even a negotiated compromise. What's in view is shalom. Right? Not appeasement, not being nice, not mere tolerance, not avoiding conflict. None of these things are shalom. Spoken of Spoken of over 400 times in the Bible, peace or shalom means well-being, flourishing, wholeness. It's a beautiful thing, deep and abiding reconciliation. Ultimately, it means Sabbath rest, glory and joy in the new creation. So, having assessed the root of violence, And being utterly committed to shalom, the God of peace becomes man in the one we call the prince of peace. The one who brings what the prophet Ezekiel, chapter 37, calls the everlasting covenant of peace. That's what the new covenant is, the everlasting covenant of peace. The one who, Paul says, made peace. That's the same verb as blessed are the peacemakers in our text. Right? The one who made peace through the blood of his cross. Now, that's a familiar phrase. You've probably heard it hundreds of times in your Christian lives. But it's a really shocking phrase. right? And part of what I'm trying to do is like strip the buffer off of these texts so that you hear them raw. He makes peace through the blood of his cross. So there, on the cross, 
right? The, in the naked, disfigured, and lacerated one, there alone we can actually estimate the predicament properly, right? And we can also estimate the price for peace. That is what the peacemaker does. That's what making peace looks like. It looks like dying. It looks like defeat. It looks like shame. It looks like weakness. It looks like a lamb being led to the slaughter. Oh, wait a minute. I thought Blessed Are the Peacemakers was about just trying to be a nice person and kind of tamp down the conflicts. No, it's about that. Indeed, we can go further and say that he not only makes peace, Christ, he is our peace. He himself is our peace, Paul says. So Jesus makes peace with the, through the blood of his cross. And then what does he do at the end of his ministry? He leaves us his peace. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I don't give it to you as the world does. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not be afraid. And then he sends down the Spirit as the power to overcome enmity and to enable us to do what? To preach peace as he did. He came and preached peace to those who were near and those who were afar. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who say to Zion, your God reigns. So Christ is then the peacemaker. Now, I want to look at what this means in the light of Christ for you and I, for us to be peacemakers. And I want to start with a couple of remarks to frame our calling. First is this. This beatitude, like all of them really, but this beatitude does not assume optimal or even neutral conditions. It assumes the conditions of the early church. Warlike conditions, right? Oppression, injustice, looming persecution. Peace has to be made in the world in the teeth of an atmosphere which is hostile and dangerous. Ideal conditions rarely apply. Secondly, notice this about the Beatitude. This is a summons to action, to vigorous activity. Notice, it doesn't say, blessed are those who desire peace or those who have a plan for peace. Blessed are those who like peace. Or even blessed are those who are peaceful. It says, blessed are those who make peace, who create peace. Right? This is a call to be a person who is a passionate pursuer of wholeness and shalom. It's a call to exertion. You heard this in the, the lesson from 1 Peter. Seek peace. And pursue it. Chase it down. Make every effort to live in peace with everyone, the book of Hebrews says. And so ironically then, in the paradox of the gospel, the peacemaker is a fighter. He or she wages peace. Isn't that beautiful? That's what you're called to do, wage peace. And that means we are to be people who are at war with slander 
and hatred and discourse and arrogance and distortion and myopia and every form of faction and divisiveness and division. And for us, I think this has two spheres or two prongs of action. The first is preaching the gospel. I don't want us to forget this, right? It is the gospel which reconciles. It is the gospel which creates the peace in view here. Right? Few of us are going to be called to be you know, official envoys to the Middle East or even public mediators or negotiators in any sense. But we're all called. We're all called to bear witness to the gospel of the Prince of Peace. And that witness, that witness will often be costly. So it's proclamation of the good news, which is the fount of genuine, lasting reconciliation. First with God, then with each other. And that brings me to the second sphere of action, right? We're summoned, we're summoned to seek harmony, true peace in our relations in life. Especially in the body of Christ. Right? We might call this living out, implementing the gospel of peace. So I want to talk a little bit about what pursuing this life of peace looks like. Again, it's important to get this right. We mentioned it before, but the first thing we can say about this life of peace is it's brutally honest. We have to assess the situations in full. Remember the prophet Jeremiah says of the false prophets, they're always going around saying peace, peace, when there is no peace. He says the false prophets heal the wounds of my people lightly. The true prophet seeks genuine shalom. But this means that to be a peacemaker, one must be willing to risk being on the receiving end of a good deal of pain. Maybe an apology will be rejected. Maybe a rebuke will be met by a rebuke. Maybe a gentle piece of correction will be met by a rebuke. Right? I mean, or maybe something that you're pleading with someone for will be perpetually ignored. Who knows? Right? To wage peace is to have your hopes deferred and dashed over and over again, repeatedly. It's to have your heart broken. It's to have your patience tried. People don't want shalom. They generally want the path of least resistance. Listen to what Calvin says about this beatitude, about the price of following it. He says, this is no light declaration. It is a matter of toil and trouble to pacify those who are at dispute. You're going to put yourself in between two parties or two people who are disputing, and you're going to insert yourself into that dispute. And Calvin says, this is no light thing. This will be toil for you. This will be trouble. And then he continues, and he says this. Men of moderation, he says. Men of moderation. Men of moderation, he says, are compelled in their efforts to foster peace, to bear hearing the insults and complaints of both sides. That's what peacemaking is going to cost you. Everybody wants the peacemaker to side with them, to see it their way, to affirm that they are the one who is in the right. It's a remarkable citation from Calvin. You could tell he was thrust into the middle of a lot of these situations, and it cost him emotionally. So the church has a lack, a great lack, of people who can carefully, painstakingly, lovingly articulate both sides of an argument. 
or of a doctrinal difference. I often say that one should not critique any position until they can so defend it that the one who holds the position would say, yes, 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 that's exactly what I believe. That's it. To not do this and then to critique another position is an utter failure of love. It doesn't matter whether you're right or wrong. It's a failure of love. It's a sin against the truth. Don't criticize what you cannot or will not or do not understand. So, peacemakers then, right? peacemakers then, they can see the world with sympathy from the other's point of view. I remember an interview I heard, it, wasn't, it was a couple years ago, with a professor of Middle Eastern history at Harvard. And she said when she gets her students in, her, in her, this particular Middle Eastern politics class, She asked the students, who, in general, sides with Israel? They they get their hands up, right? And and then who sides with the Palestinians? Which way do you lean? Israel, the Palestinians. Everybody takes a side. She divides the class up, right? And then she says to the ones who side with the Palestinians, you are going to write me an essay defending the Israeli cause. And then she says to those who side with Israel, you're going to write me an essay defending the Palestinian cause. And the kids go crazy. They're like, there is no Palestinian cause. There is no Israeli cause. There is, I can't write a 20-page essay. There's no points in their favor whatsoever. She says, oh, good. Well, then you'll get an F. Right? If you want to get an A in the class, you're going to have to read the other side's arguments. And then you're going to have to get inside their skin and defend them. Look it, look, it is my experience that people cannot do this. They, don't, they do not have the emotional elasticity or ability to do it. It is too stressful for people. They just prefer to constantly be reaffirmed that they're right. And so peacemakers have to be people of extraordinary empathetic power and extraordinary objectivity and fairness, and this irritates narrow-minded ideologues. Peacemakers seek what James calls the peaceable wisdom from above. This passage in James 3 is so instructive here. Right? He says peacemakers are going to want that heavenly wisdom. They're going to need to be pure and gentle and reasonable and willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Right? They're going to have to bridle their tongue knowing that a gentle answer turns away wrath. And that rash and harsh speech cannot administer peace. In short, we can put it this way. The peacemaker has to embody the shalom they seek to create. And that gets us back to the original problem, right? The problem is deep inside the peacemaker themselves. But the peacemaker has to be a person who embodies the shalom they seek to create. Turbulent or roiled people, you know, people operating out of grievance or anger or alienation or fear, cannot create shalom. So again, the peacemaker must embody, they must think of it as they must diffuse the peace they're seeking to create. They must have a heart which echoes that familiar, but it's very radical. Don't let the familiarity of this 
prayer be lost on you, that prayer of Francis of Assisi, where he says, Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Well, what does that mean? Where there is hatred, let me bring love. Where there is offense, let me bring pardon. Where there is discord, let me bring union. Augustine says here, and this is also beautiful, he says, peacemakers become the kingdom of God. In other words, you become the site, the place, the location where the peaceable reign of God is expressed in the world. So this is like all the Beatitudes then. It is a summons we do not have the resources for. Nor do we often have a sight of a clear way forward, right? Anyone who's been in interpersonal tangles knows it's, it's hard to figure out how to get forward. Far then from the warrior zealots politicizing of everything, and far from this worldly notions of kingship, what is this beatitude? It's the same as the other beatitudes. It is a summons to go the way of Jesus, the way of the cross, the costly way of him who is the peacemaker. This is what the gospel is always doing for us. This is what baptism entails. So listen, peacemaking is by the blood of the cross, but not just for Jesus. First for Jesus, and then through baptism by those who follow Jesus, who wage peace in his name. We always want to get this just a little off, right? Well, Jesus had to pay this exquisite price for peacemaking. And it should be relatively easy for us then. But that's not the way the New Testament works. Jesus calls us into the mystery of his afflictions. Paul says, I fill up in my body what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. So peacemaking, first for Christ, then for you and I, is by the blood of the cross. And that brings... Me to the second point, sons of, or children of God. Here we can be very brief. We're not talking here about the doctrine of adoption by which we become children of God. The focus here, the reason peacemakers are called children of God or sons of God is that they imitate the father. In the same way that you might call someone like a son of Belial because they imitate evil or a daughter of Sarah because they imitate Sarah's faith, right? So, sons of God means those who bear the family resemblance. Those who do. Now, listen. Peacemaking is about bearing the family resemblance. It means those who do this are doing what the Father does. They're sons in the image of the God of peace. And that brings us back to Jesus, right? This is what the Son of God, Jesus, the peacemaker, did on the cross. Showing love, showing forgiveness for his enemies, praying for his murderers for the sake of reconciling peace. In that, Jesus was imitating his father. And he teaches us to do the same. Right? These astonishing words, right? But I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Why? Why should we love our enemies and pray for those who persecute That you may be children of your Father who's in heaven. So you can have a form of something that looks like it's Christian, but hates and despises its enemies and doesn't pray for them. It just means you're not a child of God. 
So we reflect the traits of God when, like God, we pour ourselves out for people who hate us in peace and reconciliation. Notice, notice two things about being called children of God here. The first one is, it's passive. We are called children of God. Someone else designates you. And it's clear from the passage that that someone else is God our Father. The world may or may not recognize you. That's beside the point here. The point is that being a peacemaker, going the way of the cross, imitating Jesus here, right? Those people are designated, called by God himself, his children. He is not ashamed to be their God. And the second thing to notice about being called sons of God here is that it is future. They shall be, in the future, called sons of God. This is finally a reference to the eschaton. When what is now hidden in Christ will be fully revealed in glory. When the sons of God, as Paul says, notice that, that children language in Romans 8. When the sons of God are revealed in splendor and openly acknowledged as such by God. And the creation, which is groaning and waiting for the revelation of the sons of God, enters into its final eschatological shalom. This is our calling in Christ. And it's nothing less then overcoming that entrenched spirit in us, right, of of retribution, of vengeance, of calculating and measuring and remembering and wound for wound and insult for insult, of needing to win arguments, right, the spirit that governs our natural fallen hearts, the spirit of anger and the spirit of fear, the spirit that governs the world. This is our summons. And this being called a child of God, please hear me, this is your destiny. When Christ is revealed in glory, you too, you peacemakers, shall be revealed in glory as God's ambassadors of shalom and reconciliation. And all of your labor in this, and look, we labor here fitfully. We labor here poorly. We labor here in ways that are difficult. But all of our labor in this field, costly, often frustrating, will not have been in vain, Paul says. Because we heard the outcome, the secured end of all things from the prophet Isaiah this morning. For the prince of peace will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. Notice that he's a peacemaker. He settles. He's a dispute settler. They They will beat their swords into plowshares. There's no doubt about this, right? They will beat their swords into plowshares. And they will turn their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. No more war colleges. They won't even be training for war. (laughs) Indeed, he shall make wars. Big cosmic wars, international wars, national, national wars, local wars, wars in your family, wars in your heart. He shall make wars to cease to the ends of the earth. Peace shall triumph, and its victory shall be cosmic in the Sabbath rest and in the glorious peace of a renewed creation. So be not discouraged, 
Let the Beatitudes cut down into your soul. Take courage. The God of peace will soon crush Satan, Paul tells the Roman church. Right? The author of division and alienation and strife and warfare. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Amen.